The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and I believe it is good for us to return to this subject from last week, and I believe that this subject is more important now uh, since it's always been that you and I have been Christians. Now, our subject is standing straight in a crooked world. And the reason I say it's more important now than ever before, because our part of the world is more crooked and bent out of shape than it has been before. Christians in America have never seen what we are seeing now. There has never been this much hostility against the Lord's church. There hasn't been a time in our country when we have seen such wicked, gross perversions as we see now. Now, there's an interesting story in Amos that is a fitting illustration of our problem. In Amos 7, verses 7 and 8, the prophet Amos wrote, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. In this passage, God compares Israel to the walls of a city. A plumb line is an instrument that's used in construction. It has a heavy weight that's attached to a string. And a plumb line, when it's let down, will always be perfectly perpendicular to the ground because of gravity. And so a wall is built by a plumb line so that it will be straight and true. And God said that he would measure Israel by a plumb line. In other words, he would check them like he would a wall to see if they were they were still straight, if there were places of the wall that had bulged out and were not perfectly true. The plumb line is the standard by which the wall is determined to be straight. And I'm saying that In the history of America, we were also built according to a plumb line. Now, governmentally, the plumb line that we are built to is the Constitution. And you can compare our government now to how closely that we adhere to our founding fathers' intentions uh, when they drafted the Constitution. Or when we look at America's religion, our country was built to the plumb line of Christianity. And it doesn't really matter whether... All of our founding fathers were Christians. We do know that Christianity was the backbone of our laws and everyone looked to the Bible as the standard. Well, today we drop down that plumb line and it reveals an abhorrently abhorrently crooked wall. The major part of the stones are out of place. We are almost unrecognizable to what we were just 50 years ago. We are not true to New Testament Christianity. And one of the biggest problems is that Christians individually, we are not what we were 50 years ago. Churches are not what they were. Christianity has caved in. We're part of the concaves in the wall that have sunk in under pressure. We are part of the bulges of the wall that push out into more and more overt sin. You see, the church used to be the plumb line. It used to be straight, but now we're no longer true to the standard. Well, in this passage, the apostle tells us what we must be. And we're expanding on the apostle's thoughts in this passage to express what it means to stand up straight in a crooked world. Standing straight is to be true to the plumb line of God's word. Now, the apostle writes, beginning in verse number 12 of Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Now Paul's first encouragement in this text is for God's people to work out their salvation. Now there are many who are perplexed by this command and they say that Paul thinks that there's or telling us that there is something that we can do to earn our salvation. But we know that an interpretation like that would contradict other clearer passages of Scripture. And so we know that working out our salvation does not mean to work to obtain our salvation. But rather what the apostle is speaking of here is demonstrating our new life in Christ that was implemented by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Now when we're saved, we are justified forever by faith in Christ. We are set legally free from the condemnation of the law. All lawful impediments that prevent our fellowship with God are removed. And in that sense, we are as fit for heaven as we will ever be. But God wants more than legal impediments removed. He wants people that are positively in the process of becoming morally fit and molded into the image of Christ. In the Bible, this is our sanctification. And so when Paul speaks of working out our salvation, he means that our practice should reflect, the way that we live should reflect our increasing sanctification. So every part of your life that doesn't conform to the plumb line must be straightened out to make our lives parallel to the life of Jesus Christ. Now, the command to work out makes it evident that we don't sit passively by while this happens. We are not inactive waiting for God to perform a unilateral operation to make us like Christ. Now, if you're looking for synergism in salvation, this is the place you find it. We don't find it in the monergistic work of regeneration, but we find it here in the synergistic work of sanctification. God enables our sanctification. He ultimately sanctifies through the work of the Holy Spirit, but the individual Christian must follow the Spirit's leading. God enables us to do, not to sit. And our obedience to walk in the paths is the means that God uses to bring us into conformity. And this passage is an explanation of this. Just as the psalmist wrote in the first psalm, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Those are the actions that we must take. What we must do is steer away from ungodly sinners. We don't associate with those who mock true faith. And we find our contentment in the scriptures. And we use them to guide our daily lives. So it's the way that we walk. And no doubt that Paul maintains the theme of Psalm 1 in these instructions. Blessed is that man. That does not walk with the ungodly. Blessed is the man who walks in God's commandments. Now as we go on in this text. The apostle, the apostle instructs what we are to do. This is not an option. This is the Lord's command. The Lord judges by the plumb line. And just as he would not pass by Israel again. If they weren't true. Then neither will he use us. If we're not standing straight in a crooked world. And in the first part of the message last week, we discussed the insolence of believers. This is the complaint found in verse number 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Insolence, just to shorten that, we could say that is the sin of discontent. Murmuring, that was a part of Israel's immature character as they journeyed towards Canaan. They complained against God. They weren't happy because they didn't like the way that God led them. They didn't like the troubles they were in. And they didn't trust God to supply for them. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warned the church not to murmur, lest the same thing that happened to Israel should happen to them. What happened to Israel in the wilderness is that they died there. Most of them died in the wilderness because of this constant griping and complaining. Discontent is sin because this is the Christian saying to God, I'm not happy with my life. I don't like what you've done to me. I don't like the place where you've put me and I don't deserve to be treated this way. I think there are many Christians, as we spoke last week, that find themselves in that position right at this very hour because of all the trouble that we see uh, in our country. And we wonder, where is God in all of this? As if God doesn't know what's going on and what he will do with the situation that we're in. Now, Paul says that there are two ways that we can show insolence. One is murmuring. The other is disputing. Murmuring is the emotional response of discontent. It's an insult to the sovereignty of God who rules all affairs, who knows all contingencies, who works all things for the good of his people. It is an insult because it doubts God's wisdom and direction. The second demonstration of insolence is disputation. Disputing is the intellectual response of argument. Now it goes beyond murmuring, murmuring because it involves reasoned intent. It tries to logically justify arguments against God. And yet arguing with an all-wise omniscient God is always illogical. This is when you think you know what you need more than God knows what you need. Now the practical application of working out our salvation is first First, for us to stop trying to usurp God's authority. Whatever God, whatever God commands, we are to do. Wherever he takes us, we are to go. When he speaks, we listen. And this is because God's ways are always perfect. So the end of arguing, the end of grumbling and argument is to remember God's character, to remember his concern, remember his cause. That God is never out of touch with his people. He is never indifferent to his children. He has a plan. And that plan is always conjunctive with his purpose. So our first point is negative. Don't be insolent. Stop murmuring. Stop disputing. These are things that hinder God's purpose of conforming you to Christ. Now, going further, we read verse number 15, which is positive. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now, first, the apostle deals with negative complaints against God. And when the negative is now out of the way, he goes on to show us how we can develop the right character. So this is our, our second uh, thing that we want to look at here, and that is the innocence of believers. First was insolence. This time it is the innocence of believers. This is a character shift. Now, it's, it's true that we are natural born complainers. We are naturally obstinate. We are naturally guilty. And we need a change. Regeneration is what enables the change. It enables a supernatural character shift. Now, when we obey and place ourselves without reservation into God's hands, when we accept that everything that God does with us is holy and just and good, that's when the character of Christ, enabled by the moral change of regeneration, becomes evident. Now, in the first part of this chapter, Christ's example of subordination to the Father's will is the cue for us to do likewise. Now, the apostle says in verse number five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in the next verse, he's, verses, he proceeds to take us down this path of humiliation that Christ walked, a path of complete surrender to the father's will. Now, the key to that portion of scripture is verse number eight, in which the apostle says he humbled himself. That is, Christ humbled himself and became obedient. Now, when the Son of God stepped down from glory, he was willing for the Father to be in complete control of his welfare. His will and the Father's will were one and the same. In John chapter 4, he said it was his pleasure to do the will of the Father and to finish the work the Father gave him to do. 
And I would submit that in our sanctification, we are to do what the Father commands us to do. We are to finish the work He gave us to do. And we must have Christ's character, which is demonstrated here in verse number 15. Two ways that Paul shows us we can have Christ's character. Now, the first is to be blameless, and the other is to be harmless. It's to demonstrate Christ's character both inwardly and outwardly. So we're going to look at the outward first of all. We'll look at the external. We are to be externally blameless. And this involves what others believe us to be. What others believe me to be. And this should be a fair assessment that others make when they watch our lives. They observe, and when they observe the Christian who is following the Lord, then they struggle to find fault in that person. Now, you can be sure they will find fault, but they must manufacture those faults or they must accentuate even the smallest flaw to find anything to accuse us. That is, if we're like Christ. Pilate said that he could find no fault in Jesus. If there was a fault, he knew it had something to do with the Jews' religion. They found fault in him. It was not a problem of fault with the laws of the Romans. And likewise, people today should find no fault in us, anything other than they just don't like our religion. This is what Peter said. He said in 1 Peter chapter 2, For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even here and too were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, Jesus was a perfect man, and he was unjustly accused. So we needn't think that we will escape the world's scathing accusations. But Peter said there should be no cause for those accusations. If we suffer for doing the right thing because we live according to God's laws, then certainly God does not count any accusations against us. Jesus said to his accusers, John 8, 46, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, when there was a lawful, unbiased examination of Jesus, when, when it was a matter of justly weighing the evidence of what his life was like, the result was always the same. Always the same as Pilate's assessment. I find no fault in this man. And not once, but three times we find that in Scripture. I find no fault in him. And so the practical application of this part of the text is that we are to be externally moral. That there's nothing in our actions that is a just cause for accusation. That means wherever you are. That means in your workplace. It's in your home, in your recreation, in your fellowship. No one should find cause for rebuke. And I can tell you that takes work. This is a monumental task with all the temptations that we have living in this country, in this country where we are more crooked than we were ever before. It takes more effort. It takes more precautions to guard yourself as you work out your salvation. Externally blameless. Well, that means no cheating. We're very close to tax season and it's hard, isn't it, when you think about the taxa taxation in America? And then you mean no cheating? Do you mean no lying in that? You mean no living in the gray areas? That's what it means. And everything that you do, be like Christ. There can be no moral slip-ups. Now, I'll warn you again, you can make the supreme effort to do this, and you can do everything right, and yet still be blamed. Jesus didn't escape false accusations, and neither will you. But for sure, you put yourself in a bad place when you give just cause for accusations. Now, you can let people fire all the blanks that they want at you. Don't give them ammunition to shoot you down. Now, that's the external examination. It's what others believe you to be, and that must be carefully guarded. When accusations are made, there are, of course, two that always know the truth. You know 
whether it's true. And certainly, God knows. More importantly, God knows. Because God knows if you're blameless or if you're just pretending to be. Now, that leads us then to the next word. The next word is about hypocrisy. This is the word harmless. If we are to be like Christ, we are to be internally harmless. Now, this then is what I know myself to be. Now, to keep from being externally hypocritical, we must be inwardly harmless. Now, this word harmless could be better translated to fit modern English by saying innocent. I mean, it doesn't mean harmless in the sense that we never hurt anyone. And certainly, that's not what a Christian should do. We shouldn't hurt people. Unless, as I said in one of the messages earlier, that we hurt people with the truth. We can hurt them that way. But this is not about doing people bodily harm. It's the same word that's used by Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 16, where he said to his disciples, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I want to remind you that much of the time the apostles' teachings are restatements of truths that were similarly taught by Jesus. So we find in in Matthew 10 there that Jesus said, be wise as serpents. And that corresponds to our earlier point about being blameless. See, a snake is crafty enough to keep himself out of compromising situations. The serpent can't get up and run, so he's aware of his vulnerabilities. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't expose himself to unnecessary danger. And a Christian does the same. He protects himself by being blameless. And so a good application of that is not to run with a crowd that can influence you to do evil. Choose your friends correctly. Stay out of places of temptation. And then Jesus said, be harmless as doves. This means not to be deceitful and to be innocent by not mixing the good that you can do with the evil that you shouldn't do. Now, in Romans, Paul wrote, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So outwardly, you can pretend to be good, while inwardly, you can harbor evil. Now, Paul's warning here is about living a double life of hypocrisy. Harmless, innocent, that's what you should be in the secret recesses of your heart. Now, as I was looking at this text... I was reminded of a warning that's found in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 8. If I could just read this to you, Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Now this is truly an interesting scripture. I bring this up because the Bible is always its best illustrator. I remember when when I was just a boy, I heard a sermon on this text that had lasting impact. And the title of the message was The Chambers of Imagery. And that sermon did make a lasting impression on me. This, this passage refers to hypocrisy. It refers to the corruption of the elders of Israel. And it mentions their 70 men. Well, that is a reference to the Sanhedrin. These were the judges and who were supposed to be the godless among them. And these men held their censers in their hands. And the smoke that rose up from those censers represented how they appeared to obey God. The smoke rising from the incense is an appearance of holiness. Now, there's, of course, a lot of places I could go with that if we talked about incense burning and the hypocrisy of priests. But we haven't time to go there. And so these were men that appeared to be holy. But in verse 12, the Lord asked, do you see, do you see what they do in the dark in the chambers of their imagery? And that refers to secret rooms they had in the temple where they worshiped images. They worshiped the idols of heathens and the people didn't know it. Now, the spiritual application of it is about a heart 
that is mired in hypocrisy. The imagery is sin in secret places. It conveys the wickedness of their hearts. Oh, they looked good outwardly, but you couldn't see the wickedness in the heart. This was their hypocrisy. They led a double life, teaching morality, but living immorally. They were deceitful. Sadly, there are many Christians that live this way. Outwardly, they look good, but they hide sin in their hearts. They go to church. They're pious in the pew. They sit or stand. They sing the songs. They pray the prayers. They do everything that a godly person you would think would do. But on the inside, they're eaten up with sin. Living as a crooked wall that fails the plumb line test. But it's much easier to do than it was before. And I mean it this way. It is much easier to enter into temptations without people immediately finding out about it. Christians are mired in things like pornography as they surf the web to satisfy every evil desire. Christian counselors advise that a major part of their business now is dealing with those that are hooked on pornography. The marketable value of the porn industry is on par with the value of major companies like Microsoft and Apple. And there's just an ease of connecting with all of this stuff. There's that temptation that is in front of us and it's highly alluring and very difficult to manage. Now, when you when our society inundates us on every level with all of this stuff, Christians must be super vigilant. And you know the story. Sometimes you could even be watching our our program on YouTube and you could be led off into something that you shouldn't see. Only, you know. What you are on the inside. Now being harmless is to be innocent inwardly. And to guard against the hypocrisy of being something different on the outside. Now looking at uh, and thinking of the Ezekiel passage. This was Jesus often complaint against the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious leaders. Now you read Matthew chapter 23. And there you find a list of Jesus scathing rebukes. Let me just give you a part of that chapter. He says in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, I remember teaching on this passage when we went through the book of Matthew. And maybe you remember we talked about how the tombs of people were were uh, not put down into the ground, but tombs were above ground. And so they would whitewash these tombs to make them appear outwardly beautiful. And Jesus said that that looks like you. You're you're outwardly beautiful, but inside you're full of sin. You're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so he says in verse 28, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous and to men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now, looking at the Philippian passage, we might approach this much differently. We would probably start with the inside and then we would move to the outside. You need to be right on the inside then the outside will be right. But here Paul is assuming something different. I mean, he's looking at this differently. If he was talking about salvation, If that was his intent, then he would move in the opposite direction. He would go inside to out. The the outside of a non-Christian, you don't start there because that never matters. Because his best efforts to be moral and clean will never help his inward man. And it won't affect his salvation. He can't be morally pure without something happening on the inside. But with the Christian, and this is is Paul's... uh, Take here, this is what Paul is talking about. The the saved person, one who is regenerated, then the concern now becomes the outside first because we're talking about what most benefits the cause of Christ. What people see that you are outwardly benefits or harms the cause of Christ. They can't see you inwardly. So we have to be concerned about the outside in relation to this point because the last part of the verse is about testimony before the world. So Paul starts with the outside because the world can only see the outside. 
But you know and I know we can't stop with the outside because we must guard what we are on the inside. Sooner or later, our best efforts to cover up sin won't work. It will be found out. Outward conformity eventually breaks down unless you're harmless on the inside. Now, David is probably one of the best examples we have of the inability to hide sin. He was a saved man, but he went through a period where he had a heart of lust and he tried to cover that up. You know the story of how he lusted after Bathsheba. And then when he sinned with her, he needed to cover up. So he he called her husband Uriah back from the battle in an attempt to hide what he had done. And he appeared on the outside to be a man who was concerned about Uriah's welfare. He pretended to do the right thing, but it didn't work. Soon his sin required multiple maneuvers to sustain the cover up. Now, if you sin, if you hide hypocrisy like David, you may find yourself in a tangled web of deceit. And David found out what Moses wrote 500 years before. Be sure your sin will find you out. Paul said the same. He gave us the same teaching in the book of Galatians, where he says in Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So we must be externally blameless and internally harmless. Guard the inside and righteousness will work its way to the outside. Now, as I said, the argument in this scripture is for testimony. We must stand straight in a crooked world. And this is extremely important because of the implications for unbelievers. Now, that's third today. The implications for unbelievers. Our verses say in verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain. Neither labored in vain. Now let's take a moment to, to dig a little bit deeper. A little deeper into this text description of unbelievers. Now, the apostle's main intent here is to help believers. But he does this by contrasting the unbelievers' deviation from the plumb line, as we saw in Amos. And then he gives the believers' method of correcting this problem. Now, first, then, we look at the unbelievers' character. What is their character? Well... Our character should be inside and out, blameless and harmless. But in both of those, the character of the world is the opposite. They are, first of all, externally crooked. And it shows up in their twisted behavior. Outwardly, there there may be some modicum of morality. And that's self-generated. And it comes about because there is a conscience in man. a, A conscience that is aware of good and evil. But the good response of conscience is not sustainable because the conscience is defiled. Somewhere in it, there's always a crook. It is it is bent away from God. Now, it is more pronounced in some than it is in others. And some, we know, are more wicked than others. But there are none that are straight enough for God. Now, this this word crooked is is kind of interesting because it comes from the same word that we get scoliosis. Now, medically, scoliosis is a curvature of the spine. Standing straight with a crooked spine is not possible. Externally, you can see what scoliosis does. It causes bending and twisting. Now, the spiritual curvature in all people is their bent toward evil. And this is the reason there is no person that can come to Christ without an operation in his soul. He must be regenerated to believe because he has a bent towards evil. And that can never be overcome naturally. God must act on him before he can act towards God. Now, this this twisted behavior is the opposite of what he should be spiritually. God created man morally upright, but since Adam's sin, everyone 
descended from him is born with a moral curvature. They are bent towards evil. And this curve manifests itself outwardly in twisted behavior. And we see that this this curvature, this twist, the bend, was demonstrated in the birth of Adam's first son, Cain. Cain was not regenerated. And his twisted behavior was, of course, the murder of his brother Abel. Now, because Abel was changed by his faith, he obeyed God. And that resulted in the righteousness of offering a lamb of sacrifice. He was blameless. He was standing straight while Cain was twisted. Cain was crooked. And everyone without Christ is in the same condition. Now, outwardly, Christians should not live according to what we were before. Regeneration straightens the spiritual spine, so to speak, so that we don't need to walk bent over. We're not twisted towards sin. It becomes unnatural for a Christian to be bent over as if he has a disease. Now, the second word then that Paul used to describe the unbeliever is is perverse. That's the opposite of harmless, and it refers to what people are internally. So the lost person internally is perverse. And this has to do with a distorted nature. Externally, the unbeliever's behavior is twisted, which results from what he is internally. The nature is distorted. Human nature was altered in the fall. And it's man's internal nature that keeps him from acting rightly in his behavior. His inability to act as he should is not caused because he has a physical limitation. Now, we're not talking about physical scoliosis that caused him to be bent over. No, this is not a physical limitation from doing what's right. This is a moral limitation that keeps every person from acting properly. A lost person can do many of the things that we do. He can get down on his knees and pray. He can walk up and down the street. He can knock on doors. He can invite people to church. Physically, he is capable of walking into a baptistry and being baptized. Then he can eat unleavened bread and drink grape juice. He can take the Lord's Supper. Physically, he can do all of it. But he can't do any of those things for the glory of God. His nature prevents the proper motive, which is love toward God. There is no spiritual life in his nature. He is corrupt. He is spiritually dead. So he has no true sense of righteousness. This is what we call spiritual inability. In his spiritual death, he can never reach out to God because he is unable. Now, that's what we teach. It's what we believe. It is scriptural. And that is not an obscure truth that you have to hunt through the Bible to try and find. It's real. It's found everywhere in Scripture. And you can see it in this text, even though it's not Paul's purpose to do a discourse on the depravity of man. Total depravity, total inability, that's presupposed by the apostle. He knows that's true. And this is the reason he makes a simple statement that we must shine as lights in the world to people who are in the dark because they are crooked and perverse. They're twisted in behavior. They are distorted in nature. Now, being regenerated, we have been remedied from that condition. And so we're not to be like them. Now, we must also understand and remember that God uses means to reach these people. We are his means. The light of the gospel must shine unto them. And we are God's instruments to make that happen. So we see their character. And now we need to realize our commission. What does God expect from us? What do we do about the lost condition of the world? Well, we shine as lights in the world. God can open a sinner's heart and shine in the light without us. He can open anyone's heart and make a person sensible to gospel light without our help. He can do it. But he's chosen not to. Instead, his method of saving the loss is to use us. And therefore, he says, work out your salvation. And this is part of the working out. It's to be a witness of the light. So what are we to do? 
Well, first, we must reflect the light of Christ. We're not the source of the light. We're not a self-generating light source. We are reflected light. As in our solar system, the sun, that, that's the source of light. And then there are other bodies in space that reflect the light. The moon is a reflector, not a generator. When Moses was up on the mount in God's presence, he absorbed the light of God's glory. And then when he came down from the mount, the people marveled. His face shone with the light of God's glory. And so this is what we are in our salvation. We have been brought into the presence of God and we must shine with the light of God's glory. We shine so the world can see and believe. This is God's method of reaching them. Now, the ordinary means of salvation is the preaching of the gospel. People must hear and they must believe. And yet still God uses other methods. The light may shine by printing Bibles. It may shine through passing out a gospel tract. It may shine through benevolent works of the church. Those are methods that God may use. But most often it doesn't happen that way. Most often the gospel shines in a more proactive way. It involves us as individuals. So number two, we must reprove with the word of life. Verse 16 says, holding forth the word of life. Well, what is that? Well, it's none other than the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans says, how shall they hear without a preacher? So the ordinary means of salvation is not just people reading the Bible, although God may open the heart that way if he chooses, but instead, most often, he works through the preaching of the word. Now, a good case in point, is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. He was sitting in his chariot. He was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And that's a wonderful text on the sacrifice of Christ. But he didn't understand what he was reading. So God sent Philip all the way from Jerusalem to the desert in Gaza to reach this one man. Yes, it is true. God knows the person. He knows the time. He knows the place. He knows how to reach a specific person. And he does that. And so he sent Philip to reach one of his chosen ones who was reading the word but didn't understand. Now, Philip used that same passage and he held up the word of life by preaching Jesus to him. So the word preached, the word heard, the word believed. That's the way the man was saved. Now, that's one of the ways that we hold forth the word of life. We share the gospel. But having read this text, surely we can see something deeper that the context indicates still another way. And perhaps this is the primary meaning of this text. And that is to reach people by working out our salvation and being blameless and harmless. In other words, the apostle is telling us that the testimony of our lives reproves the world. We reprove by contrast. Your life is the opposite of crooked and perverse. And when you put a straight edge up the next to something that's even slightly bent, it reveals how crooked it is. Now, I used Amos to illustrate in the beginning of the message. And now let me give you a personal illustration here at the end. I remember in my sophomore year of high school, I took a course in drafting. Now, back in those days, there weren't any CAD programs that it's computer aided design. And so it was just tedious manual drawing. Drawings were done with a drafting board and with a T-square. And so if you wanted to draw an arc, then you had a compass or you had a protractor. A CAD program uses a mouse and a keyboard. And all you do is just put in the degrees of an angle and there it is. But back then you had to do all of this by hand. If you tried to freehand a line, then the drawing would look sloppy. You couldn't get a good straight line. Lines were not perfectly perpendicular where they needed to be at the corners. So you would square a paper up on a drafting board by putting a T-square on, um, uh, on the straight edge on the left of that drafting board, and then you would line up the bottom of the page with the T-square. Then you would slide the T-square up the page and draw a perfectly straight line. 
When you needed a 90 degree angle, then you put a right triangle with the base down on the T-square, and then you drew it straight up along the edge of the triangle. Any freehand lines would clearly show up as crooked because they weren't true to the standard straight edge of the T-square and the triangle. Well, this is what your life does to those who don't know Christ. Your life is different. It exposes where theirs is wrong. And lost people don't like it. Your life reproves them. It rebukes them. And this is the reason they work so hard to tear you down. They want you to be crooked as they are. People love darkness rather than light. They don't want light shining on them. They don't want the light to show their, their, their evil. They don't want that light to show the twist and the bends in their character. They don't want something that shows how crooked and perverse they are. And this is what Paul means. Work out your salvation by being true to the standard. The standard is God's word. Order your life by it. It's the T-square. It's the plumb line. We obey the word with the example of Christ in mind as he lived perfectly by God's standard. And because he was perfect, then he could honestly say, which of you reproves me of sin? Now, the Pharisees didn't like it because their best efforts were still crooked lines. The people didn't like it. The Romans didn't like it. And you won't be liked either because your good works Expose the evil works of darkness. Ah, but we don't stop living like Christ because we're not liked. We keep on. Because there are some who will be won by the reflection of Christ's life. There are none that will be won if we don't. So we have to work out our salvation. That is the light shining in a dark place. Peter said, where until you do well, that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And this world is an exceedingly dark place. It's more crooked and perverse than any of us have experienced before. It needs light. It needs Christians. It needs Christians that are blameless and harmless that are above reproach we won't win them without it now notice paul's last statement in verse 16 he taught these people what to do how to act how to have a right attitude and then he said when they do this he will rejoice because he knows his labor was not in vain and every true minister of the gospel desires this. We teach and we preach every week so that changes will be made. God calls us to encourage you and at times to rebuke you. And when changes are made, that's the reward of the ministry. Our labor is not in vain. Now, as I encourage you and warn you, I must also be harmless and blameless. The difficulty is not diminished because I'm a minister or preacher. If anything, the preacher needs many prayers to make sure that I adhere to the standard. Now, as Paul said in the end of his discourse on Christian warfare, he said, as you pray for all saints, don't forget to pray for me, too. So your conduct, your behavior, your conversation, all of that figures into the way that you work out your salvation and only those who are blameless externally and harmless internally can reach a crooked and perverse nation this is so important to to understand again especially in times like this let's don't react to it like the world does for your friends for your family for those that you work with show christian attitude be a light to this world that is so afraid can we change the dark world? Can we straighten crooked lines? Yes, we can. By the grace of God, we can be the plumb line. We can be the T-square. We can be the light in this dark world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for the light of Jesus Christ who has shone into the world to reveal the darkness and blackness of our hearts to show us that we are sinners in need of the grace of God. Lord, we pray that many, many people will see the light through the testimony 
that we give. We thank you, Lord, for salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. This is where we find our confidence to overcome the world, to overcome all the evil and perversity that we see in this world. We must be Christians who stand true to the plumb line. Help us, Lord, to be straight in this crooked world. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you give us, for seeing us through this time. We thank you, Lord, for good reports that we hear from church members that are just waiting, just anxious to where we can be back together again. But still listening to these sermons and still shining as lights, we thank you so much for that. We need the testimony. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. We pray, Lord, now that you would bless our people. We have many uh, that have loved ones that are sick or sick themselves. They need help. We pray, Lord, you take care of them. We know that you will. We know that all things work together for good. Lord, you know what your divine purpose is, even when we can't understand it. So, Lord, help us in this trying time to be faithful to you again, to stand straight in this crooked world. And, Lord, we give you the praise for all of us. We thank you. For salvation in Jesus Christ that has changed us and makes us fit to be eternally at home with you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. And now a benediction from God's word. Uh, This is from Psalm uh, chapter 26. And this is just a, a case where the psalmist asked the Lord to look at his life, to examine him, check him out to see if he is what he should be. And so the psalmist writes in Psalm 26, verse number one, judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord. Therefore, I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving, and tell of all thy wondrous works." I love the way that the psalmist concludes that verse. He couldn't have he couldn't have declared the wondrous works of God if he wasn't care to guard his life, to show what God expected of him, what he needed to be, to be a light to the world. And that's what we must be. Stand straight in this crooked world. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ and be a witness to others of the light. God go with you, be with you. We hope to see you next time. Keep praying that we'll be in church soon. And we'll see you in the next video. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.